Hello, great to see you again. Welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast. My name is James Paniki. I'll be your host for the next 16 or so minutes. Now, here are two words that would be familiar to our listeners. Killer acquisitions. You know what it's about. Large established companies acquiring fledgling startups, not because they pose a competitive threat today, but because they might become competitors further down the track. At least that's the theory of those opposing such deals. It's a tricky situation for regulators because there's often little they can do. Well, there have just been some interesting developments in the European Union recently, with the European Court of Justice issuing a ruling that could end the run of regulatory impotence on the issue of killer acquisitions. Natalie McNeilis covers mergers from MLEX's Brussels Bureau, and she joins me right now. So, Nat, of course, our discussion on killer acquisition goes way back, right? I mean, this isn't our first podcast on this, is it? (laughs) No, and I don't think it's going to be the last one, honestly. Killer acquisitions is the hot topic in merger control circles around the world these days. Why is that? I mean, why is that notion of a killer acquisition as relevant today as it was a few years ago when we first discussed this? I mean, I think it comes from this sort of growing sense of concern about how the sort of big and powerful companies, especially in in digital markets, just seem to be getting bigger and more powerful. And there's this feeling that Governments haven't done enough to prevent that or to slow it down. And I was thinking of you know a good example of this is uh, Facebook WhatsApp. You know, Facebook already had its own messaging service, Facebook Messenger, and then they were allowed to buy WhatsApp, and then they were allowed to buy another instant messaging platform, Instagram. I mean, it's literally astounding to think that all these platforms are owned and controlled by one company. You know, it's now Meta and. And even worse, those deals actually did get reviewed by the competition authorities and they were approved. And so people are just saying like, whoa, like, you know, who's watching the store here? The problem is that merger control rules are usually written to stop two big companies from merging. And with the killer acquisitions, sometimes the the target company doesn't have enough presence or revenue or like if you think of a a startup app uh, which doesn't like charge for its services at all that's right it can often be just you know three guys in in an office uh, (laughs) without a sort of a viable business or not much of a of a flow of cash right well yeah and they're basically dreaming of exactly this scenario that they get bought up by you know by meta for a billion dollars so the problem is like how do you capture that when the merger control rules say okay you know you have to yes you have to have a 5 billion turnover in aggregate so you know facebook uh, meta would get you there but each of the companies involved has to have a certain turnover and in europe it's 250 million euro how do you get a hold of that transaction when you have no jurisdiction over it so more and more you see competition authorities looking for new ways to get a hold of those deals that are sort of slipping through the cracks of merger merger control. And that's this judgment that I wrote about on Tuesday. Towercast was one of those cases. Okay, let's talk about this case in slightly greater detail. Why was it so important in your view? So I think if you if you look at the Towercast case, what you had is you had the um, incumbent French broadcaster, which was called TDF. And it bought a smaller rival that was called ETAS. And that rival was, I mean, of course, TDF was way big enough, but ETAS wasn't big enough. And so they didn't meet merger control uh, thresholds. And Towercast, the, who's this, you know, the name of this case, 
they were the complainant and they basically begged the French authorities to intervene anyway. They were like, look, this is a killer acquisition. They said like this ETAS is a maverick on the market. It's really aggressive. It's, it's sort of pushing price points and it's rapidly gaining market share. And they said, look, TDF is doing this because it's part of its anti-competitive strategy and you got to stop it. And Towercast said, okay, we understand you can't get it through merger control, but what you could do is you could use the rules against abuse of dominance. And you could say to TDF, you can't have ETAS because it's an abuse of dominance. And in this case, what you saw was the Court of Justice explicitly addressing this issue of killer acquisitions. And it came out with a holding that said, yeah, you can use abuse of dominance. That would be a legitimate fallback position for catching these uh, killer acquisitions. And breaking news, it's already having an effect. I mean, just the day before yesterday, the Belgian Competition Authority went after a deal on this basis. You had the Belgian telecom provider, which is called Proximus. They had snapped up this smaller broadband supplier that's called EDPNet. Now that EDPNet was, you know, struggling, it's in bankruptcy, and Proximus sort of swooped in and bought it. The authority said, you know, I think that this deal is is bad for the market. I think it's going to reinforce Proximus's dominant position in sort of fixed and mobile uh, telecom. And even though this deal doesn't meet merger control thresholds, we're going to use abusive dominance rules. And, you know, good news, we've just got validation from the court of justice that that's fine for us to do that. So you see the, the judgment already, you know, it's already working. And things are moving particularly fast. Now, you were arguing that this case might foreshadow the outcome of another case, the Illumina Grail saga. Uh, what do they have in common? Yes, the Illumina Grail case. This, uh, this has been my you know, constant occupation for the past couple of years. It's another case that didn't meet the merger control thresholds, especially not in Europe, because Grail didn't even exist in Europe. But we saw the competition authorities taking another tack to get at that deal. And they decided to go after it through the referral provisions of the merger control regulation, which is Article 22 of the merger control regulation. And that's a provision that allows national competition authorities to refer a deal to Brussels when they think that review at the EU level makes more sense because the deal has sort of cross-border implications. Previously, it was always sort of understood that the National Competition Authority would have jurisdiction over the deal, but they think actually it would be better reviewed in Brussels, you know, because of the cross-border nature. And it was always understood that if the National Competition Authority didn't have jurisdiction, that, uh, that they wouldn't refer it. And the commission had actively discouraged uh, the member states from referring because they would say, look, you know, if it's too small for you, it's really too small, you know, potatoes for us. But with the Lumina Grail, the commission really wanted to look at the deal. And so it said, well, why don't we change our policy? And we can say, okay, the national competition authorities, they can refer deals even if they don't have jurisdiction over them. And so Illumina was, you know, outraged because they they were really, you know, caught off guard that this deal was called in by the European Commission. And they went to court to challenge that. And in July, the court upheld their position. It said, yeah, 
that's a legitimate thing. The national competition authorities can refer deals that they don't uh, that they don't have jurisdiction over. And Illumina, still being you know outraged, has appealed the case, and they're hoping that the court of justice will overturn that ruling. And I have to say that after reading Towercast, I really doubt yeah. that's going to happen. Yeah. And that's why this judgment by the uh, by the European Court is so important, right? But 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 why is that? I mean, give us more on on why you think that it's not going to happen. I mean, in Towercast, what you see is that, you know, the Court of Justice is pretty accepting of the idea of sort of safety nets that allow the competition authorities to get at deals that otherwise don't meet the criteria for merger control. And in Towercast, that safety net was abuse of dominance. And in Illumina Grail, the safety net is this referral procedure. I think another thing that is sort of factually an overlap between the two cases is this kind of reference to how things used to be when these provisions were adopted, or like when the judgment was made. And and in Towercast, you really see the court kind of just discounting those kind of context arguments. You know, like I was telling you that Everyone sort of understood in the past that Article 22 was for cases where national competition authorities had jurisdiction over the case, but thought it was better dealt with in Brussels. In Towercast, there was also an old judgment. It was called Continental Can. And so it was way back from 1973. And the court said that laws prohibiting abuse of dominance could be applied to mergers. But in 1973, the EU didn't have a merger control regulation. And so the argument in Towercast was, look, Continental can only, uh, that case law only came about because it needed to fill a gap, you know, because there was no EU level merger control. And once there was EU level merger control, well, that case law was obsolete. But in the tower cast judgment, you see the court completely disagreeing and saying, look, it can't be, you can't say that the one-stop shop principle for EU level merger reviews was meant to take away, you know, strip from national author- authorities their treaty given right to prohibit abuse of dominant position. And, and uh, tell me what we mean by the Dutch clause, which is my, uh, my favorite expression in all of this. <laughs> yeah, that that's the thing. Article 22 has always been colloquially known as the Dutch clause, which is, you know, the idea that it was only meant to allow national competition authorities without their own merger control regimes to refer deals for EU level review. So, you know, they were saying that the only time in the past when a country was allowed to refer a deal without having jurisdiction was when it actually didn't have a murder control regime at all. Uh, and so the argument has been like, it's obsolete now that most countries in the bloc do have national level control. But already, you know, you saw the lower court, they didn't buy that argument. In July, they said, look, you know, uh, referrals under Article 22 of the merger control regulation is a legitimate avenue to review those deals. I, I don't think that they're gonna, it's gonna fly in the top court either. And like I said, uh, one sort of interesting factoid (laughs) that I noticed in doing research for that article, the same judge that led the uh, Towercast case is also leading the Illumina case. So this is Judge Niels Wall, 
I mean, I, of course, that's just a, you know, a, that's just perhaps an interesting coincidence. It's a different case. It's got different facts. You can't read across from one to the other. But I would say, all in all, the court stance in Towercast just it doesn't look good for Illumina. Yes, indeed. Look, Natalie, thank you so much for keeping us up to date uh, on all of this. It's interesting to see how fast everything is moving, and uh, and it's a it's a rare case of a, a very dynamic backdrop to an M and A story, I suppose. But uh, look, but before you go, I know that you wanted to say a few words about the work of a Paris-based lawyer who the MLEX team was very familiar with. Yes, Hugo Calvé. Hugo uh, Calvé was a, a French lawyer that I had the, the pleasure of working with uh, at the beginning of my career, back when I was a practicing lawyer. And I was lucky enough to watch him plead this case for TDF in the European court uh, in Luxembourg in July. And Hugo unexpectedly died a month later in August, uh, and way too soon. He was only 64 years of age. And my reflection is that I was just so grateful that I had the opportunity to see him one last time. On a personal level, I mean, he hadn't seen me in in some 20 years, and yet he was just as warm and and welcoming as ever, you know, big kisses and introducing me to his team and his accent, you know, from the south of French, dites-moi, Nathalie, you know, he's just such a a charming man. And and on a professional level, I just remember coming away from this hearing in awe of what an incredible litigator Uke was and how eloquent and, and colorful his pleading was. I mean, you always knew when you covered Uke Calvé that you're going to have some excellent quotes for your article and what a brilliant lawyer he was and the masterful way that he you know, orchestrated the hearing and sidestepped difficult questions and he was hammering home his arguments and I mean, it was watching it, it was literally like a master class in litigation. And another thing I, I just wanted to mention is that at MLEX, he was always such an incredible resource for us. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you the number of times that he really, you know, patiently walked me through a difficult legal argument or a, a difficult judgment. And I mean, at this time around, I so much felt the loss that I, it felt such a handicap to me that I couldn't call him and talk about the case and talk about the Advocate General's opinion when it came out. And so I just wanted to take a moment to to pay tribute to Yuka Calve. May he rest in peace. He was a tremendous lawyer and a real character, a great person, and he'll just be sorely missed. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. It's a good reminder of how important our professional contacts can be, both in terms of our work, but also, I suppose, the the genuine friendships that we're able to develop that make our working life a little bit more palatable. Natalie, let's talk again very, very soon. Thanks again. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Natalie McNeilis covers mergers and acquisitions from MLEX's offices in Brussels, and the analysis she has written on this is something that you definitely need to read, and you'll find it at the usual place, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. It's on the sunny side of the MLEX paywall, while subscribers have access to the full portfolio of Natalie's writing on this issue. And if you click on the News Hub tab, you'll see a link to our most recent special reports, including the latest offering from our Future Mobility team. You'll also see a link to our in-depth interview with Australia's competition chief, Gina Cascott-Lieb. All special reports are free for you to download, and they contain the very best of our reporting and analysis. MLEX's podcast is produced and presented by me, James Paniki. 
Our marketing team in London ensures that our recording makes its way to you and our executive producer is Richard Thompson. From everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. Bye for now.